trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show, fellow wrong thinker. It is so good to have you with us today. Speaking of wrong thinkers, the guy who actually coined the phrase, or at least put it in my lexicon, that would be my friend Eric Peters joins us now. Hi, Eric. Hi, Brian. I'm as heterodox as ever. How about yourself? I, I too. Yes, I, I'm thinking I really probably should work out some kind of a royalty schedule since uh, since wrong thinker has really become kind of a kind of a central tenet of this program. And and it was uh, during one of our conversations you had talked about you know people engaging in wrong thinking. And I thought, ah, that sounds mm-hmm. like a that sounds like a noble and worthwhile goal. So here we are. Hey, what? While you're at it, how come I don't get a a couple of pennies for every use of face diaper? <laughs> exactly. Actually, I have read a number of columns on your website, epautos.com, that uh, have really been inspiring. And I mean, you spell out the problem as well as anybody I, I know, but uh, you posted something the other day, um, kind of a thoughtful, unexpected way that uh, that a reader had suggested to break mm-hmm. through the fear and reach others on the subject of mandatory masking and COVID fear. Tell us about what this person was recommending. Um, well, actually, I can't remember specifically. I've been juggling so many, but I think the thrust of it was simply to not give in to this and to not lose heart and to not lose hope. He wrote in response to an article that I had written a couple of days prior about this kid up in Long Island who got arrested for trying to go to school <laughs> because you know they had imposed these uh, virtual learning stay-at-home orders, and the kid decided that he actually wanted to be in school uh, rather than sitting at home in front of his computer. And they actually arrested him, if you can imagine that, uh, in addition to kicking him out of school uh, for a whole year, which means he, uh, this kid who's 17 isn't going to get to go to his senior prom uh, and graduation for, for violating the Wu-Flu edicts. You know, there was there was an aspect of that story, too, that really caught my attention, and it was uh, someone who was writing messages on rocks or painting messages on rocks and that was it. Leaving them for people to find. And I thought, okay, that's, that's elegant for a number of reasons. That is, you just, you just reminded me of what the, the letter writer uh, uh, recommended, which was exactly that. He uh, talked about, uh, I think, walking paths in his area where there's a tradition of people doing just that. They would write little messages, and then uh, people would, would come again and, and pick the rock up and read the little message. And his point was that rather than try to be uh, person-to-person confrontational about this, which given the, the uh, emotions that are involved and the feelings that are involved, uh, that this is a way to just get people perhaps to think without having to deal with uh, an interrogator who's presenting something to them. And I thought that that was a really elegant and nicely thought-out way of addressing this issue. I like the fact that it's something that uh, conceivably kids are going to notice that painted rock. They might be the one to pick it up, and they might be the one to actually start to absorb the message or start to ask some questions as a result of it. Without question. And for the same reason, uh, that's why I will not put on that diaper. And when I'm out and about, and I'm at the supermarket or anywhere else, and uh, I, I see a kid and the kid catches my eye, I try to smile at them and let them see the face of somebody who's willing to show his face 
and maybe that will help um, help uh, tamp down some of the fear that kids are being exposed to about all of this. I have to share this experience with you. A friend of mine who is a law enforcement officer in a rural part of Utah was uh, was out hiking with his kid yesterday, and he actually called me to tell me about this. He said, it's the funniest thing. We're hiking on this trail. We are far away from civilization. But here came mm-hmm. this mom, a helicopter mom, hovering over her little masked child as they're coming down the, yeah. the path, and the child saw my friend and saw his daughter and realized neither one of them were wearing masks, and this kid turned, turned to her mom and says, well, they're not wearing masks. How come I have to? And the mom got this icy look in her eyes and said, well, mm-hmm. here in this part of the state, they haven't mandated it yet. Give them two weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and my friend, just as, as the lady stormed on by, says, or maybe never, because he's, he's very much on the side of, of you know, don't, yeah. don't mandate this kind of thing. But it was funny because this lady really took umbrage at the idea that oh, her yeah, kid saw did. somebody non, you know, in noncompliance. It's, well, it's a religious fervor. You know, if you harken back to Salem in the 1600s or go back even farther, witch, witch, burn the witch. This is not about uh, a reason. It's not about logic and facts. It's not about a civil discussion. It is dogmatic. It is about faith, faith in the end times of Wu flu. Uh, we, I've taken to playing a game with my girlfriend. We call it Padiddle, and I'm not sure if it's the, the same game that we played as kids. But you remember when you'd be out driving in a car and you would notice uh, another car that had a headlight out? or something like that, and you would say padiddle or whatever it was that you said. Uh, now we say padiper when we see somebody driving alone in their car with their face diaper on, terrified of getting the corona from their car, I guess. Yeah, You know, I sincerely want to reach those people. I, I mean, I, I, not, not because I want to stand there and, and laugh in their face, but just because I, I, I want to help break through the fear so that, so that yeah. they can, can come back to reality and, and, and break this uh, psychosis that's taken hold. Mm-hmm. Yet laughter is excellent medicine, and I've been giving serious thought to taking an old bed sheet and using it to construct a face diaper for my truck. Mask your truck. I love it. Mask my truck, to drive around with the face diaper on my truck. Now, you know, I remember, you know, there was a time when you'd put a bra on your car, you know, to, to drive around and protect the front yep. end, you know, from tar yep. and bugs and whatnot. But, yeah, make it look like a mask. I think a person could make some pretty good money if they could figure out a way to mass produce it. Well, and it again, it's hard to be serious about something that's so absurd, right? Oh, so, absolutely. you know, maybe it gets the point across that this is this is preposterous and we're being made fools of by these fear peddlers. So let's let's talk about the justification for continuing the fear. Um, here in my home state of Utah, our governor just extended for I don't know how many times, this is the third or fourth time, the state of emergency related to COVID. Mm-hmm. I guess last week they had uh, what mm-hmm. they said were two consecutive days with a 1,000 new cases. And I don't even mm-hmm. know what that means. New cases, new people hospitalized, or is this just positive tests? Are they discounting for the false yeah, positives? Yeah, positive tests. That's, that's the problem. Now, my understanding is that medically speaking, you know, among doctors, a case is somebody who has symptoms, and not just symptoms, but symptoms serious enough to warrant medical attention. And by that standard, most of the cases being reported are not cases. What's happening is that anybody who tests positive for the coronavirus, which means they might have an incidental amount of a coronavirus in their system or whatever, but no symptoms, isn't sick, isn't in the hospital, 
is reported as a case. And that, of course, makes people flip out because they hear, oh, my gosh, in my state there were 5,000 new cases reported. And the implication always is that a case is essentially a death sentence, that it's synonymous with death, that anybody who's a case is going to die or minimally be put in the hospital. And that is absolutely false. And the fact that this is not parsed out and explained to people is absolutely despicable. Yeah, my my contempt for much of the corporate media and and their willingness to perpetuate that uh, that attitude of fear is is growing by the day. And 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 by the way, sure. where, where I live in Utah, in Utah County, uh, apparently they've been looking at the college students, and and that that witch hunting finger is pointed at them. They're the ones who are doing this because the young people are getting together now that uh, you know college is is mm-hmm. back in session. They're the ones who are going unmasked. And yet nobody wants to talk about, yeah, they're also the ones who are least likely to be harmed by this virus. Almost nil likely. The number of uh, people who have allegedly died in the school age bracket, meaning I think up to age 24, something like 300 nationally, I think the figure is. So if you look at it in terms of statistics, uh, a kid is equally or more likely to be killed as the result of a hard hit in a, in a game of football or falling down the stairs or because they ate some bad chicken in the school cafeteria than having to worry about the Wu flu. Well, once again, the response is grotesquely disproportionate. You have this hypothetical risk, uh, which in actuality is very low, that is being used to justify imposing very real, very tangible harms on literally tens of millions of people. Yeah, it's it's very troubling. Although I will tell you, now that uh, my governor apparently is poised to issue new COVID restrictions sometime today, um, yeah. the, the sheriff in the county where I live has already come out and said, "Don't look to me to go around enforcing these mask mandates. That's not something that yeah. I intend to do." Yep, there have been a number of legal challenges, and two that I'm aware of. Well, one at least has been successful, and that's in the state of Pennsylvania, where. I think it was the the, the state um, federal court uh, court of appeals in Pennsylvania ruled that uh, much of what the governor Gesundheitsfuhrer had decreed was not constitutional. And part of the the argument, and I think it's a very valid argument, is that these governors have asserted emergency powers. But if you look in the the letter of the law, these powers are generally restricted for a finite period of time, generally two weeks, four weeks, a month, whatever. They're not indefinite. And yet these Gesundheitsführers have asserted essentially unlimited, unending authority to simply rule by decree. And that, regardless of what you think about the Wu flu, is an outrage. It's an affront to our constitutional process. These things, if we're going to have them, should be submitted to the voters to decide on and duly passed by a legislature before they're imposed on the populace. Here, here. Hold that thought. We'll be back with Eric Peters right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And let me just take a quick moment here to thank our sponsors, including the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Also want to thank uh, Jeff Staples Realty. And we added a new sponsor, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. I'll be telling you more about them coming up. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, uh, we always have, unfortunately, we always have a lot to talk about with, with the COVID madness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't mind shifting gears here because you had a, a marvelous column on what has happened to muscle cars. 
and why, yeah. the, why the muscle car has disappeared and, and why that matters. Yeah, well, it's not just about muscle cars. Uh, I use that as a jumping off point to talk about the generation is long now, attack on cars uh, across the board, which began with muscle cars. Um, the first attempt to get rid of them was via uh, emissions control requirements and then fuel economy mandates, and then those fuel economy mandates morphed into new emissions mandates. And here we are where it's uh, 50 years after the fact, and the internal combustion-powered car is under a concerted frontal attack, and it, it, it's right now really a, 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 an open question as to whether there will be any internal, internal combustion-powered cars within five years. Uh, because of the effort to to extinguish them via regulation, not by outright outlawing them. Walk us through the history of the muscle car, because this is something mm-hmm. I'm, we've all appreciated, a good-looking muscle car out there on the road mm-hmm. or at a, at a car show, but where did it really begin? Well, a lot of people have a different opinion about this, but in my opinion, the first real muscle car was the first mass-market muscle car, which was the 1964 Pontiac GTO, and the reason that it was a mass-market muscle car is simply that it was affordable. The concept behind the muscle car was to take a big engine from a big car and to put it into a smaller car. Now, brands like uh, AMC and Chrysler uh, and Oldsmobile had had done that before, but but generally in their higher-end, more expensive cars, which were cars that, generally speaking, only older people with more money could afford. The GTO was based on the Tempest, which was a Pontiac economy car. And they put this big 389 V8 in it from the Bonneville, and not much else. It had the big engine, it had the manual transmission, it had a few performance upgrades here and there, but that was it. And it was so affordable that kids right out of high school could go and buy one brand new, if you can imagine that. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, in, in this day and age, car prices, you know, it's like a small mortgage. Oh, yeah. I mean, this thing cost less in real dollars than it costs to buy a new economy car today. So, you know, a 19-year-old kid could go out and get himself a car with a big V8, manual transmission, and have a hoot and have a lot of fun. And the GTO was such a success that within a couple of years, every major car company was producing a muscle car. And they were, they were everywhere. And that became a problem for the, the Killjoy set that's out to always make life miserable for everybody else. And they did their very best to get rid of them. And they did succeed. And then after they got rid of the muscle cars, they began to target big cars generally. Uh, Americans used to drive big rear-wheel drive vehicles with V8 engines, station wagons, sedans. You and I are old enough to remember them. Those got extincted. And then they came after, then they came after uh, uh, SUVs and pickup trucks more recently. You, know, you get into these vehicles now, and even a big truck, uh, some of them have little engines. Um, for example, the Chevy Silverado offers a four-cylinder engine. A lot of the big SUVs that I drive come standard with four-cylinder engines. Uh, the Ford, um, the Ford uh, Explorer, or Expedition, I should say, which is based on the F-150, doesn't even offer a V8 anymore. It only comes with a V6. I'm just shaking my head because, man, that, that V8 used to be, you know, it, that was a symbol of prestige. The fact it was a gas guzzler? Sure. So, so what? That's the point. Yeah. Well, you could afford the gas because you could afford the car. Isn't that something? You know, wow. vehicles have become so expensive um, that virtually nobody can afford them any longer without at least a six-year payment plan. And forget about it if you're young. If you're 19, 20 years old, how are you going to come up with the uh, $35,000 that it takes to buy the average new car? 
Yeah, I, I like how you give the uh, kind of the history, too, of how the uh, 1970 Clean Air Act um, yeah. really took its toll, and all the smog control equipment that started being put on these cars um, essentially strangled much of the performance. It did, and it also strangled the American car industry. This is a, an interesting side story. You hear the conventional wisdom that, well, the American car companies were just producing awful vehicles, and the Japanese came in with better vehicles, and that's why the Japanese came to dominate the, uh, the car market, and it's actually not the case. What happened was that the, the American car industry, which was building traditional big vehicles with V8s, rear-wheel drive, was told all of a sudden by the federal government, look, you have to meet these new emission standards, which their engines and their cars were never designed to meet. So they had to band-aid and rush out all of these expedient measures to try to get the cars through the gauntlet. Meanwhile, brands like Honda and Datsun at the time, Nissan today, and Toyota, all they built were tiny little cars with little engines that uh, were able to comply with all of these standards much more easily and much more cheaply. So they brought those vehicles to market at that time and took advantage of the regulatory crippling of the American car industry and the American car industry has never recovered from that. Here's an interesting stat. Today, General Motors, all of General Motors, all of the brands of General Motors, have less market share combined than Chevrolet division by itself had back in 1970. Dang. Okay, so I want to ask you something completely subjective, but mm -hmm. uh, looking back on the muscle car era, What's, uh, what's the one that stands out to you as either, you know, the one with the, with the greatest potential in terms of performance or that just simply uh, lit all the right uh, fires in your soul because it looked so dang good? Well, I'm a Pontiac guy. I've always had Pontiacs. But I must say, if I had unlimited money, I probably would want something like a 1970 Hemi Cuda with the 426 Hemi with dual four-barrel carburetors and a pistol grip shifter. Nice. Oh, you put some thought into that, and I knew you would be the guy to ask about that. I mean, I, now that's a you know that's a hundred thousand dollar car today. Oh, I bet. Well, and it, for a person who's going to be spending that kind of money, though, I would assume that if let's say somebody finds one sitting in a barn, yeah, it's it's <laughs> dusty and you know a little bit decrepit, but the body's straight. Um, I imagine with some of the technology available today, they could probably put together a pretty decent uh, and and extremely high performance street rod, you know, if, if they knew what they were doing. Oh, sure. Uh, it's easier today than ever to do it because most of these vehicles, you can buy literally every part for them brand new. And generally speaking, uh, they're manufactured to a higher standard than they were back in the day. Uh, the problem is finding a good candidate to start with. There aren't that many barn finds left anymore. Most of them have been found. So, you know, you're pretty much stuck in the position of having to shell out a huge sum of cash to get one of these cars. However, there are still a lot of vehicles out there that fall into the same general category that haven't yet become preposterous, preposterously expensive. Uh, one of my readers actually asked me about that this morning, and I mentioned, for example, the, the Mustang II of the mid-'70s. Now, oh, yeah. granted, granted, that car had not much power when it was new and, and has been mocked for that reason, but... The fundamentals are all there. It's a simple American car with the same Ford small block V8 that all of the really desirable Mustangs of the uh, 60s had, and you can easily hop up that V8 to make just as much power as the, classic, the earlier classic Mustangs. And now you've got it in a car that is much lighter than those earlier Mustangs and so much faster. So that's one example. Another is the, the very last GTO, the 1974 GTO, 
which was smaller and had a smaller engine than prior GTOs, and you can still pick those things up for not nearly as much money as the more desirable, better-known GTOs, but they have tons of potential. Well, folks who want to get their fix on uh, what cars are and should be or the best of the best, they need to go to your website. Tell us, uh, we've got about 30 seconds left. Tell us about Mm -hmm. epautos.com. Sure, it's EP Autos. It's easy to find, and I, uh, I call it the web's best libertarian and diaper dissenting website. So you can come there to find out or read about stuff having to do with new cars, classic cars, motorcycles, and also politics. So we've got pretty much something for everybody there. That he does. And if you, uh, if you want to really get enlightened, too, read the comments on Eric's columns. You'll find uh, you have a number of uh, very intelligent uh, contributors in the comment section. I know I've learned a lot from them as well. Eric, thanks for joining me today. You betcha, Brian. Looking forward to next week. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Okay, I know this is on a lot of people's minds, my own mind included. We are coming apart at the seams as a nation. And if you didn't believe it, just uh, look at what look at the reaction. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, people literally were talking about, if this doesn't go our way, we burn it down. We burn the whole thing down. That's not rational talk. That is not the talk of people who are secure in their own point of view or who feel like, you know, yeah, we have some differing ideas, but uh, in the end, we're all going to get along. That's, that is the talk of scared, sometimes violent revolutionaries. And, and you know what? It's coming from a lot of different angles. So it's, it's a scary thought for a lot of people. And I'm going to pose a question here that I know is going to rattle some folks. And the question is simply this. What if we were to go our separate ways? Now, typically, there is someone who says, well, now, we fought a civil war over this once upon a time. But I'm going to remind you, that wasn't actually a civil war. And I'm sorry to be all technical and, you know, trying to, you know, be contrary here. But a civil war is when you have two or more different factions all competing for the same levers of power. That wasn't what happened in the war between the states. You really want to get down to it? That was a war of involuntary union. The South said, we're going to go our own way. And for the moment, I'm just going to leave aside whatever reasons. They had plenty of reasons. Some right, some wrong. But they said, you're not responding to us, to the federal government. The uh, The union is being abusive to its members, therefore, we will exit the Union. And Lincoln was like, no, you won't. And he sent armies to invade them and sent armies to make sure you don't leave. Which, you know, again, this will rattle some folks, but this is the equivalent of the wife beater who says, try and leave me, babe. See what happens. So it wasn't a civil war in that sense. And I know there's been speculation, and since none of us are, you know, omniscient, we can't really say. What would have happened, though, if the South had been allowed to go its own way? If they had peacefully been allowed to separate? We can't say with certainty. 
The only thing we can say with certainty is that when Lincoln violently used force to try to keep them in the Union against their will, well, we sent about 600,000 Americans to an early grave and uh, forever created a rift in the country. We also forever distorted the role between the federal federal government and the state governments. The concept of federalism was turned on its head. No more were the state governments the ones who had the majority of the powers, with the federal government having very limited powers to act. Instead, it became a national government rather than a federal government. And all orders flowed from Washington, D.C., from the top down, and the states were required to salute and say, yes, sir, and, and do whatever they were told. Now, I know there are a lot of people who don't really like the idea of being instructed, you will do whatever you're told, and like it. By the way, I'm one of those people. I don't like it at all. But I'm asking you to consider, why would it be such a terrible thing if America were to allow the red states and the blue states or the red regions and blue regions to break up and go their separate ways? Let's talk about this. David French is a fair, I think he's a pretty thoughtful writer. And he has an article published, uh, this was from French Press, The Dispatch, titled, Yes, America Could Split Apart. And he says, it's time to discover transcendent moral purpose in pluralism. Meaning, yes, there could be more than just one country or more than one, you know, organization, one union. He says, I can't remember the exact moment when I first began to fear for the future of our nation. It certainly wasn't because of a piece of empirical data. It wasn't a chart or graph that gave me that vague, sick feeling that something wasn't right. I'm reminded of the opening words of the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. The world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much much that once was is lost. He says perhaps it was the time in his life when his wife Nancy and he moved in a few short years between deep red and deep blue America, living in both the rural south and the urban northeast. He says we didn't merely experience the deep antipathy for faraway political opponents. We also experienced a mutual incomprehension. There was a lack of experience or understanding that in some ways was more disturbing even than the enmity. With a degree of understanding, perhaps there can be reconciliation, but with no understanding, even the possibility of reconciliation becomes more remote. So David French says, On Friday afternoon, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and he says, I have never in my adult life seen such a deep shudder and sense of dread pass through the American political class. We knew a polarized and divided nation was about to endure yet another sharp escalation in the culture war. And this escalation could well lead to a cascading series of events that could strain the constitutional and cultural fabric of this nation. Now he says there's a sad irony here because in many ways Ginsburg personified the fellowship and mutual respect of eras past. He says as a conservative it was easy to disagree with notorious RBG, She was a woman of fierce progressive judicial conviction. But it was hard to disrespect her. He says her deep friendship with her near-polar ideological opposite, Justin Antonin Scalia, was the stuff of legend. Her life story was inspirational. 
His point here is that America needs or a nation needs a healthy left and a healthy right. And he says, in their own ways, these unlikely friends represented the best their sides had to offer. David French says, I hope and pray that their passings don't signify the symbolic end of a time when deep friendship could flourish across profound disagreement. But he says, here we are now, when enmity rules and all of the short and medium-term incentives are aligned toward greater confrontation. He asks, do Republicans utilize their raw political power to push through a conservative replacement either now or during the lame duck session? If Democrats win Congress and the Senate, do they respond with raw political power of their own, nuke the legislative filibuster, and pack the court? Both courses of action are constitutionally permissible. Neither are culturally and politically prudent. But he asks, will the respective bases of the parties tolerate any other results? And he says there's another critical question, and that is, how much more tension and division can this nation take? He points out, as his regular readers know, this, uh, this week he releases his new book, Divided We Fall. The cent- central contention is quite simple. At this moment in history, there is not a single important cultural, political, religious, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it is pushing us apart. And therefore, we cannot assume that a continent-sized, multi-ethnic, multi-faith democracy can remain united forever. And it will not remain united if our political class cannot and will not adapt to an increasingly diverse and divided American public. He says, think of the multiple dimensions of our divisions. Yet all the data indicates that our political enmity is skyrocketing. He says, I don't want to flood you with charts and graphs, but the headline of a recent Pew Research Center study says it all. Partisan antipathy, more intense, more personal. In fact, millions of Americans are now in the grips of what some researchers call lethal mass partisanship, where they justify even actual violence against political opponents. Moreover, he says, we can't retreat to shared religious values to ameliorate the effects of a toxic political culture. While America may be growing more secular overall, it's not growing more secular at the same rate and in the same places. America's secular and religious communities are concentrated in like-minded geographic enclaves that track quite closely with red and blue. He says we decreasingly enjoy even a common popular culture. In 2016, the New York Times published a series of television ratings maps that showed that red and blue Americans watch very different shows that feature very different themes and mores. This distinction applies to sports, (laughs) as you may have guessed, but he says all of these trends are exacerbated by our geographic clustering. In 2016, more Americans lived in so-called landslide counties where one presidential candidate wins by at least 20 points than at any time in the modern era. In fact, he says, we're concentrating in single-party states. A total of 36 states have so-called trifecta governments. The same party controls the governor's mansion and both houses of the legislature. Only Minnesota has a divided legislature. Now, we're going to come back to this article in a few moments. Again, this is from David French. But I ask you to ponder, what would be so bad with America splitting up peacefully. We'll come back to that in just a few moments. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Hey, do want to mention that our program is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Patriot Home Mortgage had a very humble beginning in little old St. George, Utah. Now they are 23 states strong. And John Staples and his lovely wife, Heather, are the two people I want you to consider talking to if you are in the market for a home loan or maybe a refinance of your mortgage. They can help you get pre-qualified. They can answer questions for you. They can give you a very accurate lay of the land as to what might work best in your situation. And all you have to do is go to staplesmortgage.com to get in touch with them. You'll find all the contact information there, staplesmortgage.com. Again, very proud to have the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage as one of the sponsors of this program. Please, if you find yourself in need of a home loan or even a refinance, do business with them. Tell them that their message reached you. So I've been sharing this article here from David French. America could split apart. Yes, America could split apart, actually, is what the title is. And he's talking about something that for a lot of us, I think we've been programmed to to just reject out of hand. No, no, no. We fought a war about the keeping the union intact. The union has to stay intact. And can I just ask you to consider something? How many states are required in order to have a union? The answer is two. That's all it takes. As long as two states say, hey, we're going to stick together then there's a union that's still intact. The other question is, why would we want to keep people by force in a relationship that isn't working for them? See, and this is where the little tyrant seems to come out in a lot of people. Well, but some of these states have industries and they have, you know, places that build nuclear bombs or nuclear reactors. We can't let them have that. We got to nuke them. We got to blow them up because they can't have that. Where does that idea come that if somebody is not with you, they're against you? The idea of peacefully letting someone go their own way, I don't know why. It's, it's, it's terribly gone out of fashion. We don't even have Abraham Lincoln, you know, orating to us why this is such a necessity. <laughs> As David French points out, the result is nearly 80% of the U.S. population lives under one-party rule because we tend to cluster in places where we agree. Blue states, red states, blue enclaves, red enclaves, and so forth. 40.9% of Americans living under Republican governments, 36.7% living under Democrats. And he says, is it any wonder that fewer and fewer Americans live like Justices Scalia and Ginsburg with close friends on the other side of the political aisle? And finally, he says, clustering has another consequence, and that is extremism. That's the natural human result of gathering people of like mind. In 1999, Cass Sunstein articulated one of the most important cultural realities in American life. The law of group polarization. Here's the definition. In striking empirical regularity, in a striking empirical regularity, rather, deliberation tends to move groups and the individuals who compose them toward a more extreme point in the direction indicated by their own pre-deliberation judgments. Okay, let's translate that into plain English. That means when like-minded people gather, they tend to grow more extreme. Here's Sunstein again. For example, people who are opposed to the minimum wage, 
are likely, after talking to each other, to be still more opposed. People who support gun control are likely, after discussion, to support gun control with considerable enthusiasm. People who believe global warming is a serious problem are likely, after discussion, to insist on severe measures to prevent global warming. End quote. And David French asks, now do you see why incentives are so aligned toward a greater conflict? If you're a partisan, the chances are that you not only have outright enmity for your political opponents, but you don't have many, if any, meaningful real-world relationships with those you oppose. In fact, you may even fear that their control of the levers of government will mean the extinction of your liberty and way of life. So why stand down? Why give an inch? And as you escalate your commitment to no retreat and no compromise, the other side interprets your actions through its own prism, and you confirm their own worst fears. He says his book argues that this cultural kindling is increasingly ready to burst into political flame. Not today, not tomorrow, but all the trends are bad. All the trends are dangerous. History teaches us from 1776 for good and 1861 for evil that when geographically concentrated, like-minded Americans believe their culture is under threat, they can and will determine that the existing union shall not last. So what's the solution? I know you're waiting for him to get to this. Well, here's what he says. He says, I know that readers often want a clear step-by-step guide, enact this, reform that, and heal the breach. He says, I do believe that necessary political changes can decrease the political temperature. Respect civil liberties, including your opponents, increase local autonomy, and de-escalate national politics. But he points out none of these changes are possible without a critical mass of Americans achieving a change of heart. No, he says, I'm not talking about a sudden, unrealistic outbreak of love and regard. Love one another is a desperate hope, achievable only through spiritual reformation and renewal. But he asks, can we at least discover moral purpose in pluralism? In fact, there are two profound spiritual visions, both articulated by the prophet Micah, that can guide both the ends and means of our quest for national unity. The first is a verse repopularized by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who quoted George Washington quoting the Old Testament. Almost 50 times in his writing, Washington referred to this powerful verse from the book of Micah. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Most memorably, he wrote those words to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, to signify that one of the world's most persecuted religious minorities would have a home in this new land. These words signify a basic objective rule of just, a basic objective, rather, of just rule in a pluralistic nation. Each American can find a home. Each American can find a community, and none shall be afraid. Now, it's a pledge that has often been breached, and the fear that it will breach again motivates much American division, but David French says, can we not declare, even to our political opponents, you will have a home? And can we not pledge to protect that home by, at the very least, respecting their liberties and autonomy? Now, the second indispensable spiritual principle of pluralism is also found in the same book. In fact, he says it's a verse that he cites often. Micah 6 and 8 declares, He has told you, O man, What is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly before God? These triple interlocking obligations should guide our interactions in the perilous days to come. The command to do justice empowers our sense of righteousness. 
and the command to love kindness softens our hearts toward our opponents. And the necessity of walking humbly reminds us of our deep limitations in both knowledge and wisdom. David French says, critically, advancing pluralism doesn't mean surrendering your convictions. A truly free, pluralistic nation is one that protects the autonomy of different cultural and political communities, but creates porous cultural walls between those communities. In other words, he says, I can both fiercely defend the liberty and autonomy of my atheist friends while also seeking to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. He says, there's a vast difference between a friend who disagrees and an enemy who seeks to dominate. One vision sustains democracy, the other could destroy our republic. As millions of Americans confront both the grief of the loss of a hero while also girding for the divisive cultural battle to come, who will remember the friendship between Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg? And may we also remember Abraham Lincoln's famous admonition, ignored to our nation's great and enduring sorrow, we must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. Maybe that's too thoughtful for a lot of folks in this day and age. I don't know. It's an election year, so there's a lot of stuff that's kind of, you know, up in the air. But I think David French has something worth considering. And it really, it comes back to that whole live and let live mentality, something we used to be very good at and something that's terribly missing right now. One other thought here, I won't have time to share the whole essay, but I'm going to link to it in the show notes. If you want to live right, you have got to learn how to live dangerously. Paul Rosenberg has a new essay. It is magnificent, and you will find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Basically, he's saying the life of meek obedience is a sin against the self. It's a surrender of mind and passion. It's a half-life at best. But unquestioning compliance, that's the easy way. That's what the system is designed to extract from you. It's what school trains you for. It's what corporations expect of you. It's what government demands. His point being, in the end, compliance is extorted from you by manipulation and violence. Everyone does it, so you better do it. And if you don't, you'll get in a lot of trouble. He says, we've all experienced this, but we often fail to call it by its true name. And he's got some fantastic quotes from a number of names that you would recognize that seem to bear this out. Again, check it out in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.